yourself again But it's the only way you're ever gonna learn You look back and it's all in the past I'm dwelling on the thoughts I cannot say to you If I don't say the words then maybe it's not true Welcome along to Steve Wraith's True Crime Podcast. Delighted to welcome Suzanne Shorty to the show. How are you, Suzanne? I'm very well this afternoon. Yes, Steve, thanks. Good to have you on and uh, a lot to talk about uh, with you. Uh, you are my first uh, former police officer on the show. Uh, I think the, oh. true crime, the True Crime Podcast is often known as former villains who've suddenly gone from, uh, you know, being the, the worst possible version of themselves to turning their lives around. So, um, uh, yes, it's, it's, it's a first for me, Suzanne. So thank you very much for coming on. Mm, thank you for having me then. Good stuff. And I, I did see your podcast uh, with Sean Atwood. That's where I uh, first watched you. And, and because of your connection to the North East, I thought it'd be great to get you on, really, because not to talk about yeah, you chasing down villains in the North East in, in, the, in the good old days for you, but just to talk about your life, um, you know, why you became a police officer, uh, you know, how you ended up doing undercover work, the effects it had on your mental health, and then ultimately leaving the force and, and what you do now. And I also want to get a few views on, on some of the current affairs that's around uh, the police. But uh, going back to the start, Suzanne, just tell us a little bit about where you were brought up and, and oh. what you were like at school. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I hated school. Um, so I was brought up in the countryside outside Corbridge. I went to the good establishment of Queen Elizabeth High School. Um, and yeah, I hated school, um, but I did. It was sort of that thing I, I sort of knew it was a process I had to go through to do other stuff. Um, and so I was very sporty, always been into sport, sporting family. And um, I actually went on to uh, Brighton Uni, uh, but uh, to do sport, I did a BA in physical education. Um, and became a sort of fully qualified PE teacher, is um, which is really bizarre considering I hated school, but that's yeah. what I decided to do. But, you know, it's one of those things sort of like at that age, 18, I think I didn't really know. I, sometimes I still don't know what I want to do or what I want to be. But um, And so actually I got my first teaching job at West Denton High School in Newcastle. Um, and I did that for a couple of years and... Um, it was actually my brother-in-law he joined the police and been in about a year and let's just say it was a challenge in school and it was just like I could be arresting you rather than putting up with the shit that I'm putting up with I know it, it's a bit you know I was yeah. young 20 22 and um and so I, I so I started I applied to Cleveland Police, didn't get in, and then applied to Northumbria and got offered a place. And yeah, then uh, so, joined so, the ranks of police. So when you apply, um, you know, you, you you put in an application form. I mean, did you have to go? Did you have to go in for an interview? Did you have to do medical? How does how does it work? Uh, yeah, I mean, those days? both both uh, interview processes were really quite vigorous. Um, sort of two day interviews, staying overnight with things like, like it's sort of like SAS challenge, you know, what you see on the TV now, um, yeah. sort of the challenges, team building, here's a load of wood, how do you get across this river? And we all like to work together and 
work out how to do it. Um, plus sort of person to person interviews with various people, fitness tests. Um, bleep, and then the bleep test. The ble- we, we did the bleep test and then we did, there's a run round. I don't know whether this will do it. So it was at like Pontyland headquarters. Right. I think it was something like a mile and a half and you have to do it under under 12 minutes or something like that. Uh, f- but for me, I've always been sporty and active, so that wasn't um, an issue. I mean, but already it was like there wasn't that many women. So and my competitiveness is is how can I beat the men? Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I did beat quite a few of them, but, you know, so it is... It is it, I would imagine it still must be. It was a rigorous um, process to get through. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, I was, I was successful and ended up being, um, like saying, did, did, we did the training at Akeley Heads Durham, which no longer exists, um, and was actually posted in Biker. Wow. So that's a, that's a baptism of fire, if ever I've heard of one, uh, going to yeah. Biker. What, what, was, but, what was that like then? Um, it was just sort of the... You know, I didn't sort of really question it. It was just, you know, when other people got other places, I was like, oh, God, I've got biker. Uh, biker and walker. And, um, but it was, I said it was exciting. It was sort of, you know, wanting to make a difference and, you know, catch criminals, uh, mm-hmm. make, make the community safer, um, be part of, part of that community didn't really work out how I thought it was going to do. But, um, you know, it's challenging. It was a good job. It's hard. You know, it is, it's like any of the services. It's so much more than just the uniform. Um, and I'd like to think that's changed since I was in. You know, bear in mind, I was, I was policing in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, some things have, something hasn't. And unfortunately, you know, in the media at the moment, the police aren't getting much right it looks like yeah so i mean obviously going into biker and walker i presume it was like you did you do a probationary period you have to go out and go out with somebody who's more experienced to start with yeah so the process was was that you get doubled up with your your, like your tutor who has hopefully done training on how to be a tutor and shown you the ropes what to do how to approach people um you know work within the law and all of that and and you, you do you sort of get you know so you go to your first shoplifting you go to your first i'll say twerk which i don't think we even have now taken without owner's consent a lot of that you know, in the 80s and you know ram raids big sort of uh business burglaries you know that you know went down to shieldfield and you know down or scottswood road where all the big units used to be you know when they used to, when people used to steal TVs and stuff, you know, um, so it was like that, you know, and on the beat, so walking around at ridiculous times of the day, you know, driving around night shifts, all that, you were doubled up, and you were on probation for the for your first two years, and then you'd qualified, you'd got the job, not that you hadn't when you're in it, and it wasn't, you know, it was, it wasn't very long before. You know, you're in a car, you're driving around on your own. Um, yeah, so it was interesting. Yeah, what was that? What was your attitude like towards you as a woman going into the police force in the nineties? You know, 
You know what? Obviously, it's I can look back, and I'm sure there's lots of other women that was in the same position as me. Of um, oh my god, how? Why did I not recognize sort of misogyny, sexism, the treatment of women? When I look back at my experiences, and and the thing is, was very much so when I joined. It was very much I had to become one of the lads, you know, and sort of take up those sort of male traits, if you like. And as a woman, if I stood up to something or spoke out, I would then be labelled as like the arsey one, the one that's going to cause problems, which in itself means that people don't want to work with you. And, and not that that happened to me personally, but I saw that. And so... I didn't speak up maybe when I should have, when sexist comments were made, when um, inappropriate stuff went on, uh, because it was just sort of that thing, that's the job you put up with it. Mm. I mean, I'd hope today women feel more empowered to speak up. And of course I look back and go, I should have said something then, I should have done that. But at the time it was, you know, I want to be a good police officer. I want to do my best and I want to fit in, you know, because it is an institution. And I think st still it is very much, you know, we look after each other and you don't make trouble. So you fit in, you don't speak out and be awkward and cause issues. Yeah, I can completely understand that. And I guess, I mean, the 90s was a completely different time as well. I mean, you know, we we say the 90s and and I think you're, you're, you and I are probably the same. You think, you just think it just feels like it was yesterday. <laughs> but yeah. actually, actually, it was 30 odd years ago. And that's, fr yeah. that, that's frightening because in that 30 years, so much has happened, so much has changed. And it has to be said for the better. Um, but from from our perspective, yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine, yeah, you know, in any job, really, you know, that that casual smack on the backside that you would uh, a man or a woman would give the other one, um, you know, which was probably accepted and laughed at now, uh, in those days. Now is quite rightfully condemned. So, you know, it, it is difficult to look back, I guess, on, on those particular situations. Go, going into going into the the job as well, and as a probationer, you, you know, can you remember what your first job was? Your first yeah, your first arrest was. On, on, on duty? I was trying to think, I think the first arrest was, um, or one of them anyway, was um, a shoplifter from Neto on Shields Road. Right. You know? Um, and again, it's sort of, I look back and I feel quite, I don't know, obsessed about, so, and it was actually an older guy in his 50s for mm. nicking bacon. Right. And, you know, the reality is this guy and people that don't, maybe listening don't know Bikeman Walker, you know, it's quite a socially deprived area. Um, you know, a lot of people living on the edge, really. Uh, and it was very much a working class area, you know, it was where a lot of the doctors lived, miners lived. Um, so there's, there is a, there's a community there, but then also there is a lot of social deprivation and poor people and you know the reality is this guy you know he was nicking bacon to feed himself most likely mm. and um and it's like you know arresting him of, of course he'd commit the crime he'd nick the bacon you know in the eyes of the law he'd commit the crime and this was you know he got caught but in reality it's like you know does he really need to be punished he needs help you know, but again, that goes back to, without getting into politics, 
society and how we look after the most vulnerable and poor people in our society that you know but again that's it's a morality thing, thing. yeah it's a, yeah, it's a morality yeah, thing you know and that shows that you're human, Suzanne. It shows you're not a robot. Yeah. You've got a, you've got an emotional um, feeling about that particular situation. You're, you're, you're looking at it from a rational point of view. You're seeing this guy is clearly struggling. You know the reason he's nicked the bacon isn't because he's going to be the next Ronnie Biggs. It's because he needs to he needs to put something in his stomach. Mm-hmm. Doesn't make it right what he's done. It's a crime at the end of the day. He's stolen from a company to you know to try and feed himself. But but I can see why you would feel emotional about that. Mm-hmm. And I actually feel at the time. Again, I was a lot more black and white. And again, this is how I've come to where I am in, in the activist work that I do. Yeah. Was sort of, you know, it was the police are there not to sort of challenge the law, if you like, to uphold the law. Um, so you don't question it and you and you do it. And so there was, there was very much a bit sort of in, in probation and training where you sort of do become a bit of a robot in, in responses to some things. Um Again, I probably wouldn't arrest anybody now. I'd be like, oh, <laughs> yeah, it makes it difficult. It does make it difficult when there's that kind of like you know that kind of battle going on. I guess in in, in your mind. So, so from your perspective, you know, you you pass your probation. So, you, do, do you stay in biker and walker? Yeah, I did actually. And what what just the way the person went, you sort of like saying. <laughs> In the nineties, it sounds like same for me yesterday. And actually, just one of the things when I first joined my first court case at Newcastle Magistrates, I had to wear a skirt, right? Which is like crazy to think of now. They did change that when I was in, but like that was it. You know, the male female women had to wear a skirt. That's just a point. Very mm-hmm. impractical. Um, so I yeah. So I was stationed in in Bike and Walker, and the way it went was because of um, the increase of 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 drugs in in communities, and you know Leah Bates was a big shock factor to people of you know the evil of drugs. If you do drugs, you'll die, and so there was a massive push on finding the drug dealers, who's dealing them, who's supplying them and getting them out. Um, so that's when really we started looking at doing, getting special operations. So, mm-hmm. and, and developing, uh, develop, I can't remember my words, groups of people within the police force that would particularly look at information that was being brought in. Mm-hmm. Uh, the start really of informants and using them to create packages. So it was like a, a a crime unit that was set up that dealt with information that was brought in, um, developing operations to target these people and then go and, you know, classically boot the door down at five o'clock in the morning and catch the the real criminals. Mm -hmm. Um, So because that was started, I was interested in that. Um, That's what I worked on. And then through that was when I went on to do my level two drug buying training and then did sort of undercover drugs operations so i mean that's a hell of a jump i mean you know what <laughs> what was the time what was the time scale between you know being a, a you know a wpc to to then going into that special you know special part um, of the job god i think trying to remember the the mm-hmm. orders so probably uh three years in uniform yep. was then when we started doing the the crimes unit 
and then from from training doing my level two, so it's probably like maybe like eight months then mm. then then they started doing the the drugs buying level courses and again that was like at headquarters where you'd go and you went for a week and you did various situations how to do stuff how to get the drugs that you want without saying that's what I want and what to look for and all of this. Um, and then it was literally sort of a few weeks after that, that I sort of went into first undercover buying operations. Wow. I mean, I mean, you're clearly, you know, you said at the start of the programme, you know, being a police officer, you just wanted to catch criminals. So this particular job, I mean, it must have been a, it must have been a, you know, a big achievement for you to get to that level. You must have been delighted that you could get to that level. And I mean, did you anticipate that it was going to create such a, a mental battle for you? Because, you know, I, I know you suffered, you suffered greatly, didn't you, with like your mental health, with, with this particular I, situation. It puts you under stress. It, yeah, it certainly does. And like, sort of, like for me, the mental health side and where it took me, you know, like I say, I'm really open that I'm in recovery from alcohol and other drugs, that mm -hmm. it wasn't it wasn't particularly the job that I although it was a contributory factor mm -hmm. in the job I in the job I did, it was actually um it was life, you know, how I view life oversensitive and a massive, like a massive imposter syndrome that I'm a fraud, people are gonna find out, I don't know what I'm doing, and and that chase of perfectionism. So I did jobs, I did them well, but then I, I would minimize them. You know, I don't like people going, oh, you did a great job. It's like, or my head would go, oh, but I could have done it better. Or we didn't quite get those people. Or, or go straight on to the, the goal of the next person, the next operation. Um, so, you know, what I experienced all contributed to my negative mental health, but it wasn't the cause of ending up being problematic substance user and all the mess that that, that creates as well. Yeah, it's saying like, it's like when you ask me about school, growing up, I always had a sense of, I didn't fit in. And, and it's like, but on the outside, I had friends, I was in sports, I went to uni, um, teaching police, you know, great friends in police, but so inside I had no sort of self-worth and just that, I felt a fraud, but I don't know where that came from. I was just going to say to you, I was going to say to you, I mean, I, I, and I, again, you know, I, I don't want to dig too deep with you because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, you know, trigger something with you, but I mean, you've answered the question, you don't know where it came from. And I mean, yeah. they're having that, having that self-doubt, we're all different. You know, I, I was quite confident at school. You know, I was quite cocky and confident, not arrogant. Um, I was the I was the class joker. Like you, I hated school. Um, but I always had a I always my 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 mind was made up at the age of seven years of age that I was going to be an actor. That's what I wanted to do. And I eventually achieved me me goal in a roundabout way after doing you know, so many different things, being a post office manager, doing the doors for 18 years, um, you know, but I came back to acting and I, you know, managed to, I went back to school and went back and did a, a GCSE exam and then a degree. So you do eventually, you know, I, I was determined and got that. Not everyone's that lucky, but I, I always had that confidence. And I, but I could understand other people being on the flip side, like yourself, you're, you're describing something which is alien to me, but I do know, you know, from some of my friends, I just don't have the confidence.
And the things as well, it's like, so, you know, I can look back and go, why? So as well, like being in the police and being not that many women in the police, it was definitely, you know, I had to work twice as hard yeah. and do more. Or I felt that anyway, to fit in, to get the acknowledgement. And, you know, in, and in that time, you know, arrests got you attention. Um, it got you, you know, you had to prove yourself to get on training courses. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's that sort of like, you proved yourself here, so therefore you can go on to the training course. Um, you know, so there's very much a, a reward system. Um, but still, like, not feeling good enough. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm I'm not enough. I need to do more. You know, did your parents encourage you in in your chosen profession? No, um, no. My it's again unraveling the mm -hmm. past. You know, when you look at your history and uh, why did I end up me? You know, why did I end yeah. up alcoholic? Whatever. Um, you know, I was. I'd say in a dysfunctional family. I don't really know any family that isn't in some aspects mm -hmm. dysfunctional. Yeah. But, you know, very much um, my dad was a hardworking farmer, but was not available to me at home. He, you know, mm -hmm. and I share that he was a functioning alcoholic. Um, and my mum had four daughters, trying to make ends meet and... We weren't really encouraged to do, like we certainly weren't encouraged to follow our dreams because that was too frivolous. It was like you have to have a plan. Yeah. And you know, like so go I what I should have done is fashion, but it's like what's practical? And at those times, if you did a degree in teaching, you would definitely get a job, which meant I'd be able to pay bills and a mortgage. You know, it's I had to be sensible and so they sort of let me get on with it. They were, and I was, you know, I was quite independent and I would have done what I wanted anyway. Even though, even though inside I was, you know, full of fear, you know, low self-worth, all the rest of it. On the outside, I gave that image of, I'm confident, I know what I'm doing and I'm going to do it anyway. But um, yeah, it's funny how things work out. Yeah, that sounds as if, you know, it, it does stem a little bit from your childhood, but, you know, you should be immensely yeah. proud of what you've achieved, you know, you, you, you went on. So so getting back to the undercover work, I know we're jumping from, from subject to subject, but that's what sometimes happens on here. So that, that kind of undercover work, you know, it, it's uh, uh, like everybody watched Silent Witness and stuff like that. There's, there seems to be a lot of sitting around, Suzanne. Yes. They, <laughs> well, like I said, if they did actually do um true crime series on the actual realities of it would be really boring because yeah. a lot of the work is you know sitting in the back of a van with a couple of other people doing ops on a house or people where nothing happens mm -hmm. like not and it's like classically literally in the change over time it all kicks off and it, it there's a lot, there's a lot, again, there's a lot of work behind the scenes that people won't know goes on in policing and catching criminals. And uh, yeah, I mean, the one that I do like is Line of Duty is very, very good and accurate on mm. what goes on, I think. Um, and, and actually Happy Valley. Um, not that... Uh, not that all every village has a serial killer and all the rest of it, but you know, sort of like it, it comes across quite clearly. The I think 
the mental drain and commitment of police officers. Yeah. Who do actually fundamentally do care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that's that's the key part of this. You mentioned that, you know, the services in as a whole, you know, the, the people who do care and, you know, whether that's fire brigade, nurses, police officers, it's uh, it's, it's a drain, um, I guess, on, on, on your personal relationships at home as well, Suzanne. I mean, could you, you know, could you hold, you know, a family life down doing that kind of job? Well, look, luckily, I actually took a career break from the police. Um, and I went back to follow my dream of doing fashion. Uh, didn't quite work out, but um, and actually, I um, I was pregnant with my first child when I started my my degree in fashion. And actually, because I took a career break, and it was just really, and I was going to go back for a, for a little while at least. But I'd had my first son, and. I just there was something in me that I I knew I couldn't do the same job, you know. You know, it's saying having children changes you. It's just knowing what I knew and the people that I dealt with, and what goes on. It's it's like I don't think I'd be responsible for my actions. I I couldn't do that job, so um, I chose not to go back to the police because I I couldn't emotionally, mentally um, deal with that. So the undercover work that you did, it, it was drugs related. Yeah, yeah, it was all, uh, it was all drugs. I think there was one operation that we did that was to do with stolen goods, but all, all, all the other ones that that I did do, it was all related to drugs. And without talking about any particular individuals or any particular cases, I mean, you know, what what did it entail for you? You, you mentioned you know, befriending people, et cetera. How, I mean, how, how would it work? How would, it, how would one of the jobs work? So again, it's it sort of like operations that were done, accumulation of intelligence on the who, what, why, where of people that they knew of. Mm-hmm. And again, that was generally generated through arresting. So arresting people with simple possession, but then sort of being able to turn them into informants of, to get more information so they'd get a lesser sentence, you know, sort of, you know, bartering, um, yeah. you'd get a package and it'd be right. This is, this is going on in uh, this area in a club. So let's say, for example, in a club, um, we had arrests for this, been reported. These people are, are dealing in the club, so we need to get in, find out who they are. And again, the goal was really to get the bigger fish. Um, which would then end up with actual supply. Um, you know, there are, so that would involve basically, if we had photos of people, great. So you could actually see who it is, or you'd go in cold, which would mean you'd be going in and you'd be looking around the club to find who's dealing and then befriend them, hopefully purchase something and then come out. And then you go in again to sort of, create a relationship with that person and people in the club. So you get more information and more people. And then eventually when there's enough evidence has been gathered in, so the CPS would be happy to go ahead with criminal charges. There would then be sort of a sting operation, which like saying, if you're working on the doors, you probably had that happen to you when you'll go in, spoil everybody's night um, and, and arrest the people that you've, that you've targeted. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, it, uh, you know, from from your perspective as well, Supergrasses, you, you mentioned, you know, were, were something which were becoming, you know, quite frequently used. Were, were you somebody who agreed with that? Because, I mean, I, I guess in some cases, I'm, I'm just going back to that that arrest of the guy with the bacon. I guess it's uh, yeah, preying on a bit of vulnerability for, for some people. Oh. And I've seen I've seen a few cases, obviously over the years myself. Just just as a just as a newsreader, somebody reading 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 something in local news where there's been a particular informant used who who has an addiction. Yeah, I mean, again, I look through a completely different lens to when I was actually working. Um, you know, and I and I believed what I was told that, and at that time, I didn't have an issue or problem with alcohol or other drugs and they were illegal. So it was against the law. The people that were causing the issues in the communities and the crime, it was all related to drugs. You know, drugs was the problem. The people that used them, dealt them and we needed to find who they were and, and arrest them and get criminal charges brought. Like now um, I have a very different perspective on those people that are involved in in that um and i i very much see that what we are doing and continue to do which is enforcing the drug laws um is a complete waste of time and it actually causes more negative effects than the people that we lock up and and whether people like it or not it's a lot of the people that are caught up in this are vulnerable people, socially deprived, poorly educated, and actually have no real alternatives. Hmm. Well, I mean, what you know, I, I see a lot of people talking about drug reform and, and people talking about, you know, legalising cannabis, um, you know, to, to, to change things, you know, not just in this country, but worldwide. What, what's your view on, on that? W would it help? Yeah, well, like the same with... The <clears throat> I'll just do a little plug now. So there's two um, organisations that I that I work with. One is LEAP, which is Law Enforcement Action Partnership. Um, and the other one is Anyone's Child, which is part of Transform. Um, Transform is actually a charity that's been running for, I think, 25 years now um, on looking at drug reform. So basically, with both of those, what we're looking at is the problems but what would the solutions be? And you can dress it up as much as you want. You can introduce lots of diversion programs. Um, but we have this problem issue with drugs, illicit drugs, you know, the ones that are illegal. Um, and what can we do about that? Well, for the past 50 years, you know, since the Drug Misuse of Drugs Act, We've done nothing but try and lock up all the people that use drugs, lock all the people that supply. And all it has done is created bigger problems. And it's not going away. You know, the amount of money on law enforcement for drugs alone is huge. Um, so how can we do it differently? And so, you know, for me, the way forward with this is to be adults, you know, we have drugs in society. People are, n are not going to stop using them. Um, so how can we do it to 
to reduce those harms to individuals and communities would be to look at a legally regulated market for all drugs. And now that's a big pill for people to swallow, but it doesn't mean that you'd be going down to the supermarket and, and, and buying heroin. That's not what we're talking. We're talking about uh, the right regulation for, for whatever drug it is. So like, for example, heroin, it wouldn't be available. It would be available medically for those that need it. So people that have an issue with, with heroin, who we see in the media all the time, which is again, another thing which could go into social media, you know, how they're portrayed. Because actually the reality is they need help and treatment, not criminalization and locked up. And those, there's always a thing that I use, like saying 90% 90 of people that use drugs, that's everybody, your mates that, that have a spliff at the weekend or whatever, do so without causing any harm to themselves or other people. But there's 10% um, where it's problematic. And then within that, you know, the the images that we see of the, the drug addict is, is a lot less. It's like 2% of that 10%. But in the media, when we say problematic substance use, we sort of label people with that. And it's not. You know, lots of people use drugs on a regular basis because it's their choice, fine, but because of the criminality of it, you know, they don't talk about it and it's not public use. And because of all the negative media, um, it's, I can't think of the word I was going to use then, it, it's, we just need to be adults about this. And what, what would the solutions be? And, you know, a regulated market would absolutely change policing and it would change communities interesting i've stuck the uh, the website things uh, links up i'll stick them up in the uh, the chat as well ukleap.org.uk anyone's child.org what's what uk leap then tell tell us a little bit more about that so, so uk leap is the you know, law enforcement action partnership and basically it started off in the in the usa um and it is basically law enforcement and the criminal justice system. So, you, you, you know, police officers serving or like myself, uh, retired, um, the criminal justice system, judges, the probation service, the prison service. And it is basically people that have had lived experience within those that that have actively, like myself at the time, thought they were doing the right thing, enforcing the drug laws sort of have, have had light bulb moments of what are we actually doing? What are we actually achieving? Are we achieving, you know, achieving, you know, the end goal by the United Nations of a drug-free world? Well, that, you know, it's never going to happen. And looking at alternatives, what would be the solutions? And sort of all agree that actually a legalised, regulated market of all drugs would be the way forward. Interesting. Fascinating, really. I think, um, uh, you know, legal highs as well as something else yeah. um, I'd like to talk about. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I became aware of legal highs from a guy who, who set up a shop in Newcastle a, a few years ago and um, it was called Idealer. Um, and he was one of the very first, I think, in the UK set up in um, in a place, which a shopping centre, a Newgate shopping centre. It's no longer there now. But he actually was working, I think, with the police and with the council. Uh, and you know, allowing people, they allowed people to go and buy legal highs at that shop, 
but that had to be registered. That had to be registered to buy there. The council and police had to be aware of these people. Uh, you know, and again, I looked at that system and was wondering. You know, I know very little about about it. Um, so you know, I couldn't say whether that was a great thing or a bad thing. But the fact that the council and police were prepared to work with this guy seemed to, you know, seemed to be, you know, seemed to be helping. What What was your view on legal highs? Were they Were they an answer or were they a hindrance? Um, oh, it's not massive area of uh, of knowledge for me. Well, like, so what I know mm. is actually the legal highs and like spice and those sort of chemically produced. Uh, mm -hmm. drugs are part of why we need legal regulation because the people that I spoke to and the people that I know were that because they were available and they couldn't get what they their drug of choice so whether that was like a few years ago there was a be aware there was a heroin shortage um through import and exportation and so the people that that was their 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 medication on a daily basis they couldn't get that the only thing they could get was the legal highs so so that's what they got and other people saying the same down that sort of the cannabis route couldn't get what they what they actually wanted to use so use these but actually you don't know what's in them you know it's a chemical mix you've got no idea how you're going to react so but because of the legality of it they were available so that's what they chose it's not actually if they were if they could have gone and legally bought their bit of cannabis that they want to use. That's what they would prefer. Uh, people sort of using heroin. That is actually what works for them. But because it wasn't available, they went down other routes. And again, that sort of goes back to the people that sort of use heroin problematically. Ideally, what they would get is medically assisted treatment for that. So it's diamorphine is the medical term for um, pharmaceutical heroin. That's what they should get on a regular basis to help them with looking at their problematic use. So it's actually, for me, the, the, the legal highs are a result of prohibition. Mm. Mm, yeah, interesting. I mean, it's something which seems to have uh, you know gone off the radar again, but it was a very topical conversation uh, back in the day. You, you know, without digging too deeply about your your addiction, I mean, was that was that a result of the job? Was that to try and gain confidence when you were going on operations? Did you feel that you had to take them, or did you feel tempted because of the stress of the job? What was what was the situation there, Suzanne? No, I mean. Um... Again, it's the the old nature nurture argument. Um, so, look again at my family history. There is history of alcoholism, depression, mental health issues in both sides of my family, and, and it's not laying the blame there. But it's just if I knew what I knew now, um, I I drank like other people. I uh, I would go out, get hammered, and come home, and. Occasionally, I'd use drugs when they were there and available. It, and like saying, it wasn't it wasn't a particular event in my life that led to my alcoholism and, and drug use. It was a combination of my own sort of childhood trauma, adverse child experiences, not having them dealt with, and. I ended up sort of like, it worked. That's the thing. 
alcohol and other drugs worked for a long time. I didn't feel comfortable or I felt I didn't fit in or I was having a bad day or I was having a good day. I had some alcohol and I felt better, like most humans do. But as my mental health deteriorated, you know, and there's a mixture there of I had postnatal depression, um, I suffered from low mood, um, my self-worth. And in the end, again, like I said, it's quite blurry where I went from drinking a bottle of wine a night, which people do. It's more than you should do on the health, you know, with, with your doctors and your GPs. But, you know, people do and they manage and they function and there's no negative consequences. Where that, where I crossed over to, you know, and the reality for me was dropping my kids off at school, buying alcohol from Tesco's and drinking it as I, as I walk home, you know, and ending up a 24-7 drinker. Um, and again, it, it's it's that combination of, I didn't know where to go for help. I was full of shame and guilt and the stigma of, you know, I am a woman with two children in a nice house, whatever. There's something wrong with me um, that kept me in that cycle. And then the consequences, negative consequences got worse. And then I couldn't, and then the, the guilt and shame and the stigma got worse and I just couldn't see a way out of it. Um, and, and that's, you know, that is problematic substance use, that's addiction, that is, you know, how it happens. It's just, it, it's, it's an illness, which I didn't recognise either. You know, I just, like I said, I thought there was a, there was a moral failing in me. You know, I'm a mm -hmm. bad person at the core, you know, my self-worth, I'm a bad person. I don't deserve. So that kept me in that cycle. Um, and I was and I was extremely lucky. I was extremely, well, I say extremely lucky. I went through a lot of shit um, and negative consequences. You know, you know, I ended up being arrested by people I used to work with. Wow. You know, what, what was that like for you? I mean, that must have been, that must have been the way, was that the wake up call? Because I was just going to ask you, how no. did you break the cycle? No, that wasn't. Well, again, it's like I can look back and go, why didn't I realise that I had an issue and a problem and actually drinking makes the problem worse? You know, it's just, no. And, and again, that's the thing. You see, I can look back and, I, you know, I ended up a few times being arrested, not all by everybody that I worked with, but with people that I worked with. And what that did was made me feel more humiliated, more shame, and I couldn't see a way out of it. And... Um, I didn't know where to turn. I didn't know who, I, I thought I was the only person. And again, you feel really alone, you're disconnected and you isolate and you feel more alone. And I, and I was brought up sort of very much sort of like, you just get on with it. You know, you mm -hmm. just get on with it. You see a problem, you get on with it, you get solutions. And I just didn't see a way out. And I, and I thought I was going to die because I, I didn't see any solutions. And, I actually got recovery through mutual aid groups, so through um, AA and NA, which works for me. But it took a lot of negative consequences and it actually took, um, it was a suicide attempt. Um, and I woke up the next day and, again, you know, it's a selfish illness. And I, you know, but I, I, I absolutely thought and believed that was the solution 
I'd be better off dead and everybody else around me would be better off without me. And obviously I see now it's absolutely not the case, but that's where it takes you. That is your option. And no illness should end up with that being your option. You know, mm. when we talk about mental health um, and it was just a light bulb moment in, in hospital. Um, I was being seen by a psychiatrist that I'd seen numerous times that said I wasn't ill enough to be kept in. And I just had a bit of a, I'd be going to AA and had people in my life that were in recovery and I saw they could do it, but I just didn't think I could. And there was just something switched in me then like, right, I'm going to try this 12 step stuff, whatever, because I'm going to die, but I'll give this a go first and see what happens. And, you know, that's like nearly 15 years ago. Um, and I haven't, had a drink or use of the drugs to change the way I feel since then, which is great, amazing. And also, um, you know what, sometimes I just love to have a drink, mm. be great. But I know that's not a solution to me because I can't just have one drink. I can't just, you know, it's like taking MDMA. I, I just couldn't do one. If I had one, I had to have two, mm. you know, that, and that's, you know, the, addiction thinking I, I want more I have the addiction of more and I can still do that I want more shoes I want more stuff I want more whatever it is um and I just have to be aware of that because it, you know it can come out in, in other ways but yeah. actually the thing that was going to kill me is not killing me on a daily basis today and, and well done you because that's a hell of an achievement in itself you know to, to, to come back from that from that kind of situation and um you know uh, you know, I hope that uh, you continue on that particular uh, on that particular road. I I've got to ask you. I mean, from your experience, do you ever feel that sentences reflected the crimes that 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 you know you you were dealing with people on a day to day basis? You're putting people behind bars. Did did you ever felt you know justice was actually done? Because I've got to be honest, when I look at some of the things that have happened that I've seen, you know, just just on the news, I, I often look and think, wow. You know, that's crazy. You know, suspended sentences here, suspended sentences there. No, you know, the prisons are full, as they keep saying. But it, well, you know, what, what's your view on sentencing? Um, it's out of your hands. You've done all that hard work yeah, to get somebody to the Crown Prosecution Service for them to say, yep, yeah, it's going to court. And then it just seems to me that sometimes the judge on the day now is, you know, it depends what side of the bed it gets out on. I, I mean, is it... it, it... I said, you know, I said, I'd like to think it, it's changed somewhat since the 90s, yeah. but I'm not really, you know, because there was always the classic, if, and I can't remember exactly, so not quite, but it was something, you know, so like, say you arrested someone for drink driving, and the next, they were kept in, they were going to appear in front of the magistrates the next day. If they went to North Tyneside, they got harsher sentences than the city centre for driving offences, or if it was a certain magistrate, most likely they'd get a lesser sentence or a bigger sentence. You know, the saying is the law is an ass, ass still stands, really. <laughs> but, um, you know, again, that's another frustrating thing in the police is you can put a huge amount of work into your case, take to Crown Court, and justice isn't served because they don't get the sentence that they should or you know, a technicality where it can all get chucked out. Um, you know, personally, which is slightly different to whatever that 
the ones I think that upset me most were sexual offences, you know, against women, because the the onus is on the woman to prove her innocence still, if it even gets to court, you know, um, that is extremely frustrating. And so you know that there's somebody there that has committed a sexual offence crime, has got off with it. And that's, that still gets me. But again, you know, like, it doesn't, but, but like the system, I would say the system's broken. It, it's not, it's actually made that way by people in power, but you know, our prisons are full. The prisons don't do what they're supposed to do, which is put, punish someone and rehabilitate them. We just don't do that. We stick people in there that are already vulnerable, um, whatever the background is in that system. And they come out back into potentially exactly where they came from. And we're expecting them to be rehabilitated and wanting to be part of the community and serve the community when you know they're probably gonna be arrested not that long later, and then they go straight back to prison. You know, the system, we don't look after the people that we need to look after and care for, and actually invest in them, if we if invest in them. Yeah. That's fascinating in to hear a former police officer say that, to be honest, because you hear a lot of villains saying that, but it's, it's I guess I guess for the villains who've been on the podcast who occasionally still watch this, they'll be, they'll be you know, they'll be pleased to hear you say that it doesn't rehabilitate because it, it, it does. It doesn't. It's, like a, it's like a breeding ground for, for, for more crime, a meeting place mm -hmm. for criminals, unfortunately, which which is what happens. Well, you, you know, again, like you're saying, people, you know, that whole thing of you can get as much drugs in prison as you can outside prison, mm. you know, and, and where, like, I remember, like, talking to, chatting to some of the people that I dealt with of learning the trade in prison, learning new technique, you know, it is, it's, what else are they going to do? I mean, you know, I've been on many a prison visit and the the checks are very, in, uh, in, you know, mm -hmm. intensive. So, you know, why spend all that money on, on those kind of checks when, when ultimately, Suzanne, they're just going to lob them over the wall with a, in a, in, inside a tennis ball onto an exercise yard? I mean, you know, I, I've always, it's always surprised us, you know, and, and as, a, as a visitor to a prison on many occasions, the, 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 the checks that you have to go through are quite intrusive. And if they suspect you're carrying drugs, they have drug dogs in some of the, you know, the, 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 the big cat air prisons. Um, you know, you don't get through. In fact, you end up in a prison cell if you even dare try to smuggle, um, you know, drugs into a prison. So they're clearly getting them in somehow. And I think we all know how they're getting them in, but it, there just doesn't seem to be the checks, which again, mm -hmm. it just, it does leave you scratching your head because you do know that some, you know, people go into, into prison and because they can't cope with the environment they're in, become addicted to drugs. Some people who haven't even taken drugs. So mm -hmm. we're creating drug addicts in there, but I guess mm -hmm. that's, maybe that's one for a different a different show. I am conscious yeah. of the time and, yeah. you know, I do like to keep my podcasts around about an hour. I want to ask yeah. you about social media. Um, 
from my perspective, I've had my say on, on this podcast many a time about social media. I'm on, I'm on social media. I'm across it. I have to be. I've, I've had to promote events. I promote this podcast. I promote, um, you know, I promote myself as a self-promoter, um, as an actor. I have to do it to get out there and, 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 and you know, you know, and be seen if, if you like. But it does come, unfortunately, with a bit of a, a bit of a problem. It, it comes with the fact that people don't like to see you doing well. They want to attack you because of who you are or maybe what you've been um they you know maybe because of the football team you support um you know i've i've had many a situation develop it could be because people don't like the particular true crime book that i've written um from your perspective what, what's your views on social media suzanne because you know I, I guess you've i guess you've had to had to become used to social media and and, and getting out there you know since you left the force and, and the stuff that you're doing requires the message to be spread so social media is a big part of that yeah i mean it's it's that necessary evil i think um i i, I don't really like social media i mean but like saying you know what you have to do you can't get away from it if you want to do it and get the, get the name out there to get people to um you know, potentially join our campaigns and want to get involved it's necessary mm. um i i have learned that i don't read comments for me personally i don't it, it's um it's been a learning curve i you know i've just recently taken off notifications for all different groups and stuff because i found it really stressful and you know 24 7 like i'm sure you know getting pinged at 11 o'clock at night and not looking at it. it 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 has its uses of course it does because it can get the uh, you know your messages out there get you the attention that for various things that you want but i think uh, do you know what it is at the end of the day it's personal responsibility and um i'm only responsible for what i put on there or what I comment, or how I react to to a comment. I'm human, you know. I I might have lost it okay on occasion, um, but it takes a certain level of courage for a person not to reply to things that are directed at you, especially if it, if it's to you, your family. Um, but trying to remember that. It, it's not you, but it is you. And what I'm trying to say there is, is it's really hard, but try not to take stuff personally. Mm. And also what I, what I quite like is if someone does, uh, you know, for example, the classic line is, you know, legalise, regulate all drugs. What do you mean you can go and buy heroin from the street of sort of engage them to have that conversation to get them to try and look at something from a different perspective and, you know, a lot of the times, most of the times, actually, people go, oh, I've never thought of it like that. Because people don't, you know, they, they, they've got their tunnel vision, they think, uh, you know, I'm sure even more so in sort of particularly the football world as well, you know, my team's the best, we're right, you're wrong. And if you, if you beat us, then, you know, you get all the, all the aggro. It's, um, 
there's, there's no real answer. Didn't really answer your question. It, it's well, just... there's, a, there's a there's a tribalism there with football. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I was picked out primarily by a lot of Saudi bot, um, Qatari bots, if you like. Uh, when the takeover was uh, was imminent at Newcastle, I, I was very mm. pro takeover. I just wanted to see Mike Ashley out. I don't really know a great deal about the politics of Saudi Arabia, Qatar, etc. However, I was you know attacked on a regular basis by very you know weird accounts that has to be said on Twitter particularly um, about that you know and and you know just trying to belittle me, trying to annoy me, trying to get a reaction, which you know I was I just block block block. There's a block button. That's what you use it for. Um, report and block. That's that's all I did um, on social media. Um, you know, YouTube, um, you know, doing this podcast, it helped keep me sane during lockdown. But but obviously some of the things that I was saying on on some of the true crime podcasts that I did, you know, weren't weren't well received by other quarters. And, you know, I ended up in a situation where that was going backwards and forwards. And, and I think there needs to be, I personally think there needs to be more control, Suzanne. I think especially on YouTube, um, you know, there is certain channels on YouTube which have been set up primarily just to attack people, to have a go at people. And, and you know, whether that's political, whether that's um, something something to do with religion, whether it's something to do with, uh, um, you know, with, with vaccinations, um, you know, these channels are going all out, you know, with, you know, we've seen it with terrorism even, you know, we've seen it with, you know, people, you know, young people being influenced by it. Coronation Street at the moment has, has, has covered that on a, on a particular storyline, so it's 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 a current it's a current thing. But I think there needs to be, um, and I don't know whether you do, a bit more um, control. Uh, and the social media companies need to I wake mean, up and go, hold on a minute, that's that's yeah, ridiculous, you know. Absolutely, you know, f- f- Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, and oh, what's the other one? Twitter. Twitter, yeah, yeah, you know. Whatever you use, like the platform you use, there is a distinct lack of accountability by the people that make millions from from those sites. Yeah. You know, it's too easy for them to up out and go, you know, that's not our problem. That's individual opinion or whatever. When when clearly the stuff on there is offensive, um, it's attacking people. They absolutely need to be held to account. And more so. And again, this is where you can go into the down the route of there's a lot of money in it. Um, there's a lot of nepotism and, you know, look in America of money going to political parties to support so they don't put up blocks. You know, it it's complicated at that level. But I do think and again, it's that it's, I don't know. I don't know why there aren't more people crying out about this because they do need to be held accountable and our government should also make them accountable. Mm. I I mean, look, again, as well, you know, there is, you know, there's so many positive things come from it. I mean, I I follow quite a few of these um, Predator Hunter uh, websites. I've I've watched them. I remember Dark Justice, the one of the very first in in the Northeast. Uh, Is that kind of thing a help? Or a hindrance to the police. I mean, we've just seen with the oh yeah, know, the, yeah, the, yeah. The, tra- the tragic case uh, of that young lady who uh, was found in, in in the river. Um, you know where we've seen a lot of TikTokers, um, Instagram makers, people going down. You know, which you know covering the case and putting it onto YouTube. Is it you know is that kind of thing beneficial or is it is it, is it a bit of a hindrance to the police, Suzanne? Um, 
personally from what I've seen, particularly in the recent case, I think it's been a hindrance mm. of of people unfortunately thinking that they can do better than the police. And I'm not saying, you know, the police got it right. Personally, I think when they released the information about her issues with alcohol, I think that was absolutely a disgrace. It, it was nobody's business. You know, the police had been, they knew the situation, but again, it was because to, to stop speculation. Well, with the best will in the world, you're never going to stop people speculating on anything, minute or otherwise, but that's up to them to speculate. But when it comes down to, um, you know, like you're saying, the people going on thinking they can solve, the, you know, I think most people at some point quite fancy themselves as a detective and how hard can it be you know, with all these programmes on? But actually, you know, again, the police are very good at what they do. They don't always act in the best or and they make mistakes, but, you know, detectives, CID, police officers, most of them are very competent and do a great job. So they should be left to do that. And you know, not criticised and pulled apart, sort of let them, let them do their job. Would you do it all again, Suzanne? Would you go back? I mean, like, you know, yeah. nowadays, looking at looking at what you see, I mean, you know, there's been a lot of cuts in the force. We're, we're seeing reports of misogyny. We've had the horrendous case of Wayne Cousins and WhatsApp groups full of messages from various, you know, various police officers backwards and forwards. And a lot of bad rep. You touched on it earlier. You know, there's been a little bit of a bad rep. But, you know, if you were, if you were 21 and you were looking for a job, Suzanne, would you go into it again now? Mm, no <laughs> I don't know do you know what I don't know if I could go in with the knowledge that I have now I think not in an egotistical way save the world whatever but I think I could like if I, if I went back today I could serve the community and do I would do a better job I, I might not arrest many people mind but I, you know <laughs> um, yeah and and this is part of the issue of that it has been a misogynistic workplace, jobs for the boys, it's an institution and it's been protected and people have protected each other. And that that has to stop. Um, and again, it's, it's why we actually need more women in, in law enforcement and in services and in leadership positions um, and part of of that, um, in order to give a better service to the public. But again, you know, it, it's really it's deep. You know, patriarchy and misogyny is is very deep, and there's a lot of unconscious bias. You know, I have conversations with friends, my sons, and you know, society and culture, how it feeds us. Yeah. Um, there's lots of unconscious bias. It's sort of, sort of like, you know, back to what I do. If you arrested someone for drug dealing, most people would imagine a bloke. And if you arrested a, a woman, a woman, the attitude towards them, it, it's almost like she's worse. She's more evil because she's a woman and a mother rather than she's actually a person and she's doing what she seems best, you know, and where sentencing is harsher. It's harsher on women caught up in the system than men. Yeah, 
again, just that conditioning that we have, you know, as women, we're more caring, nurture, nature, and looking after everybody. You know, like, like I faced, you know, with, with my own problematic substance use, it's, um, you know, I couldn't stop for my children. Hmm. Amazing story. Um, and I know we're, uh, you know, we've flipped it all over and talked about yes. lots of different things. And I do, it's very difficult to condense a life that you've led in, in, into one hour, but I do like to keep it fairly tight. So I just want to finish no, off no just obviously the positive stuff that you've, you're, you're doing now. Um, I'll put the website up again. Uh, anything else you want to plug? Anything that, you, uh, that you've got coming no, up, Suzanne? Um, just really that if you're thinking, how do you go about legal regulation? What does that look like? You know, look on the Leap UK site and on anyone's child, there's human stories of people that have lost children through, um, for example, taking MDMA that was that was far too strong. Um, friends around were scared to call the police and ambulance. By the time they did, they died as well um, as people caught up in the criminal justice system and why they're all um, campaigning for drug reform, you know, making it safer for our kids in society and, and get curious, you know, ask the question and find out and hopefully it'll change your mind. And if you do want to do something, whether you like it or not, you have to lobby your MP. And there's information on anyone's child about how you can write a letter to your MP and start that process because we need like we need change but it's the people at the grassroots you know at the coal front if you like that need to push that change and it is it is changing you know around the world that we can see legalization regulation all around the world so come on the uk needs to i say up its game is really not the right word you know we need the changes great stuff Great message, Suzanne. Um, it'll be good to get you back on for a News of the World show because I think you've got a lot to say about other topics other than what you, you know, what you've had in your past. But we some we, we do an occasional show where anything anything well anything goes. But we do have a, we do have a topical discussion, so I might invite you back on if you're ever free to come on. It would be great to have you on. I think you'd be a great guest. But um, yeah, that'd Su be very interesting. Yeah, Suzanne Sharkey. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for coming on. Thanks, Take Steve. Care. Thanks for asking me. Bye-bye. Bye. A big thanks to all our sponsors, starting with Skips and Bins, telephone at 800 25 email inquiries at skipsandbins.com, website skipsandbins.com, easy contract free and pay-as-you-go waste collection. Thanks to Mr Vicky's Sauces, handmade in Cumbria. You can order them from mrvickys.co.uk, email them at info at mrvickys.co.uk, or call them on 01768 210102. Why not try some new beers at Blowhole Brewery? You can find them at blowholebrewery.co.uk. Thanks also to United Group Travel, UK coach holidays based in Morpeth. Telephone 01670 362 460 or mobile 07957 141 654. Graham, your driver, Beverly answering your calls and looking after you on your tour. Thanks also to Three Properties. They specialise in sourcing investment properties for their clients who are looking to invest in the northeast. They offer a full in-house service from sourcing the deals to managing the properties for you. 
They've done over 100 plus deals in the last 12 months for clients all over the UK. Give the guys a follow on Instagram, matty.patter underscore northeast property and phil.read underscore northeast property or email phil at threeproperty.co.uk if you're interested in getting a good property deal. Thanks to qtechshop.co.uk, the makers of pool tables and snooker tables in Walls and Newcastle and the guys who run our website, nufcmatters.com. Thanks to Media Arts for all the videos. If you want to subscribe to the channel, hit the subscribe button underneath this video today. Hit the thumb up to like the video and click share to share to your social media. If you're out and about, you can catch us as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean and the rest. If you want to uh, join the channel, click join and you'll find out our membership packages down there. Very easy to do. Or if you want to become a cult member, £25 a month, go to nufcmatters.com and look for membership pack or put your smartphone over the QR code and it will take you straight there. Anyone who subscribes to the channel will get a free car sticker. To get your car sticker, simply email john at nufcmatters.com. Got a few events coming up over the next few weeks. Steve Howie, Friday the 24th of February at the Tyneside Irish Centre. Tickets available for £29 on voucher. And even with Nobby Solano, Saturday the 25th of March, tickets £15. Book at nufcmatters.com. Nobby Solano is also at Felling Critic Club on Good Friday the 7th of April at 4 o'clock. Tickets are £10 and available behind the bar. And an evening with Frank Clark and John Gibson, Thursday the 20th of April, that's at the Tyneside Irish Centre. Tickets are £15. Book now at nufcmatters.com. We've also got a vast array of t-shirts available at the website. If you want your special Wembley t-shirt, go to nufcmatters.com and get one now while stocks last. (laughs) 